What happened to that introduction I wrote out? Uh, my name's Joe Krogan. I'm an alcoholic. It is uh, a, truly an honor to be here this weekend, and I'm looking forward to it. I promise you this, that after this talk, the speakers are going to get really good this weekend. And uh, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, this is exciting to be here. I want to thank Jimmy and Mary Beth and whoever else was on the committee had anything to do with getting my wife Tammy and I here. I'm here with my wife Tammy and she is uh, ITP. I just learned. She's ITP. Don't feel bad for her, you know. I learned what that is at, tonight. That means in the program. <laughs> so, um, uh, she's one of us, so, and, and thank God she's, she's the better half, and uh, uh, I'm honored that she's here with me, and uh, I love this, pro and, and George and Jeff, who picked me up, that's some Quinella, thank you guys, and uh, George, I want to tell you about George. George takes this anonymity thing too far. I got off, I got off the plane, he has a sign, it's a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> True! <laughs> Thank you, George. Great for the self-esteem. Um, that's the first time I've seen that. Uh, but I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and uh, I am so looking forward. The men and women that are speaking this weekend are people that I've heard for 20 years over 20 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I truly believe that if you don't have people that you emulate, you will not grow. And these are people that have, and not because we're, we're brothers and sisters in virtue, we're not, we're brothers and sisters in defects. And I love these people, each and every one of them, because they have bared their souls and given me a safe place to be. I can't thank them enough for that. Uh, they saved my life. Uh, and I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the greatest thing in the world for me. It's a place you can come when, at the darkest time of your life or at the brightest time of your life. So uh, I want to welcome anybody in here if there's any newcomers in here. And I want to take a moment first, and I want to just, uh, if you'll indulge me, I want to take a second moment of silence. I want to acknowledge the presence of, of uh, my creator. And you can do with that moment what you see fit. Uh, normally, I pray for the speaker. But... Uh, <laughs> uh, no, on a serious note, on a serious note, what I, what I, you people were, were um, you people were, were victims of a hurricane last year, and perhaps some of you have seen the news the last few days, so I know that your hearts probably really bleed for a lot of these people, and I know a lot of you people are still going through some of the wreckage of it, so if, I'll see you back here in a couple seconds, okay? Thank you. All right. I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say tonight. Step one, right, Lee? Well, he's gone. I can do whatever I want now. Um, and I probably will. Uh, my home group, oh, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I told you that, and here's why I love it. We are, this is the only place I've ever felt comfortable. This is the only place I've ever felt like I fit in. I love this. I'm talking to people in the lobby, and people, you know, they say, well, where are you from? I'm from Florida. Oh, Florida, I got arrested there. Only in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not we played a nice golf course there, or you got nice beaches. 
Yeah. Yeah. Another guy said he had his fifth DUI. I just, uh, so... Uh, we speak our own language in here. And then newcomers, when we talk to newcomers in Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't give an answer. We explain the, the, the answer. And, it's, and simple, you've got to realize that most simple questions are like trick questions to alcoholics. Like, do you have a job? Or where do you work? You know, and we always start the answer. You know you're in trouble when they, when they start the answer with, well, uh, where do you live? Well, um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, so <laughs> I was right at home here because I'm still well, you know. <laughs> um, my home group is the Life's a Beach group. We meet on A1A in Palm Coast, Florida. Perhaps you heard of that street. I know Peter did. Uh, and uh, I love living there. And, uh, but I, I um, really am looking forward to the uh, recovery this weekend. I... Um, I want to tell you a little bit about my drinking. Uh, my sobriety date is September 12, 1990. Uh, I don't remember a heck of a lot about September 12, 1990. I remember a heck of a lot about September 11, 1990. That was a bad day for me. Um, I didn't plan on becoming an alcoholic. I didn't grow up to be one. Uh, I set out, and it's, it, you know, it might amaze, I ask people this all the time, and I, I have the privilege of taking meetings into detox treatment centers, and I ask them, I said, did you ever get up in the morning and say, today I'm gonna put a hand grenade in my life? Today I'm gonna put a flamethrower to my life and I'm gonna blow it up? Absolutely not. I got up every single morning of my life until September 11th, five days before my 40th birthday, till September 11th, 1990, and I tried to be successful and happy as best I could. And where it brought me on September 11th was to a Skid Row motel room in Fort Lauderdale with my two-year-old son in that room and his, and his mother. Uh, absolute, total degradation. You know, there's, there's a... a Three words that I did not need to find when I got here. And I didn't understand what really what my problem was when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I know that might sound strange, but I really didn't. I knew I drank a lot. And I knew I did. So I was one of the lucky ones. I did a lot of drugs, too. I find alcoholics like drugs. I don't know why. I did, they do. Um, and if you haven't done any too bad, it's too late. Uh, um, but... <laughs> we, um, I didn't set out to be an alcoholic, and I didn't set out for that to happen to me. I didn't turn out, I didn't set out to be in that room on September 11th, 1990, and, uh, and I could have been in jail for the things that, that, for what my life looked like. But, um, that was the day, and I really believe this. I believe that I did step one. I think I believe that for a lot of us. I believe that I did step one before I got here. Because I think step one is an internal thing. I think it's an inside job. It's one of those, inter it's one of those interior things. It's not out here. And, and by the way, John was magnificent with his presentation, and they talked about those two different types of religion and that one religion that's personal to you. And I think that this whole program is personal. And I don't think that, that I could have gotten here until I absolutely, uh, something inside of me screamed out, uh, in, in mortal pain 
And that's the day it did, it screamed out. But I had an epiphany that day, and, and I'm not gonna tell you your story, I'm gonna tell you mine, and this is my experience, and it may differ from a lot. And I know the book talks about the different types of alcoholics, there are those that, uh, it talks about those that are normal in every respect outside of their drinking. My wife's one of those. Then it talks about those that have grave mental and emotional disorders. <laughs> I'm one of those. Um, I knew I was a screw-up, but of course, and it says in our book, but it did not satisfy me to be told I was maladjusted to life in full flight from reality or an outright mental defective, although these things were true. To some extent, I don't know how some extent you're a mental defective, but to some extent I was. And, um, but I believe that day I took, I took uh, step one, and it was an internal thing. Something happened inside of me. Uh, what happened for me that day was, was unlike the previous days. I'm going to describe a little bit of the alcoholic. We, we talked in the doctor's opinion about alcoholic torture. And I thought alcoholic torture was seeing a guy living under a bridge. I thought that was torture. I didn't realize for me what alcoholic, I'm going to tell you what it looked like for me. Here's what it looked like for me. Anybody ever remember cracking your eyelids open after a binge? Or a spree or whatever you want to call it? Remember that, when you crack your eyelids open and the first thought in your mind goes, damn, I'm not dead. I know there's people in here that felt that way. Uh, and then, and then the terror comes on you. It's all gone. The money's gone, the alcohol's gone, the drugs are gone, the job's gone, she's gone. It's all gone. And you sit there in absolute horror. And, uh, and then I would mount my defense, uh, merging from a, a spree remorseful with a firm resolution not to do these things again, not to drink again. It was my pattern. And I would mount the defense, and I would buy into this defense every time. I would buy into my own BS. I would say, that's it. I'm done. I swear to God, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to turn my life around. I'm going to be, I was always turning my life around. I was always going to grow up. I was always going to straighten out. And uh, that's it. I mean it. I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to put some food in this place. I'm going to get my life together. And I absolutely meant it from the bottom of my heart. I would look at my little boy and I'd cry tears. And I meant it from the bottom of my heart. And uh, I don't know, sometimes it was an hour. Sometimes it was a day. Uh, but it wasn't very long at the end when I would simply forget that I quit. It was that easy. I'd just simply forget. And I would come up with some trivial excuse like the book talked about. You know, I'd look at the newspaper, I'd be looking for jobs, and I'd say, you know, and, and I had that terrible, you know what it was called? Sobriety. <laughs> I was sober. That's what it was called. And I was, it was, because I didn't know that's always been my problem. And I would sit there and I would look at the jobs and I would, you know, ah, heck, all the good jobs are taken. You know, tomorrow I'm going to get up real early and straighten my life out. And I did that over and over again until September 11th. And on September 11th, I'm going to tell you what happened. September 11th, I woke up, cracked my eyelids open, damn, I'm not dead. And I started the same thing, and it was all gone again. I burned my life to the ground one more time, and I started to mount the defense, the alcoholic dance. 
And I started to mount that defense and something inside me said, and I said, that's it, I'm done. I'm not gonna drink anymore. And something in me went, yes, you are. You can't quit. And that was different than any other day. Now, I know that some people come here to straighten out. I did not, I, don't, I can't tell you that. This is the day before I, my last drink. And what happened to me that day is I had, a, I had an awakening. And I realized what my real problem was. My problem was not alcohol and drugs. My problem was lack of alcohol and drugs. <laughs> my problem was sobering up. I couldn't take it. For me, sobering up at this point, my drinking was like holding your breath. I could only do it for short intervals. But sooner or later, I needed to gulp. The, it, and George read it. The ease and comfort that comes at once with a few drinks. And I would, do, I would be in this motel room in absolute poverty and in degradation. And I would take a few drinks or I would smoke something or I would snort something. And within a few minutes, I would do this. Oh, hell, things aren't that bad. What was I so worried about? <laughs> and I would do that over and over again. The delusion. And... Uh, but that day I couldn't do it and I realized, I said, I can't quit. And I'm gonna go on to the end. And I knew for a fact, something inside of me knew, something inside of me broke. I knew for a fact that I was gonna die of this disease. Uh, I didn't know when, I didn't know how, but I knew it wasn't far away. I was pretty close to death at this point. My teeth were falling out of my head. I had huge sores all over my body. I was absolutely unemployable. Um, and I knew that I wasn't going to last long. Whether it be in the gutter or whether it be in jail, I knew I was going to die in a short time. And I made a decision. I said, that's it. What's killing me is quitting and then failing over and over again. And I made a decision that day to quit quitting. I'm not going to quit anymore. I don't care. I'm going to drink until it dies. I'm going to do whatever it takes to do that. Now, it's crazy, but I was at a meeting last night and there was a new guy sitting there. And you could tell this guy was in pain. And he told that exact same story. He had five days sober, and he was so angry. He said, I don't know why I'm sitting here and listening to these stories. They don't do anything for me. They, they only make me more angry that you people are happier that you're getting this. He goes, I know I'm going to use again. I know it. And I don't even care. When I do it, I say the heck with it. Uh, I knew exactly what this guy was talking about. And he stormed out of the meeting. And... Uh, that's what happened to me that day. I surrendered not to, not to get sober. I surrendered to this disease. It beat me. It had me licked. And if you look in the big book later on, when I finally read that book years later, um, <laughs> there's this passage in there where I believe Bill actually experienced his first step, where I believe he hit bottom. And it's on page 7 and 8 is where he said... Um, he said, so now I was to join the endless procession of sots that had gone on before me. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. Alcohol was my master. He wasn't surrendering to get sober. He was surrendering to die. This disease beat him. And, that's and I didn't know, that's exactly what got me here that day. And I would have died. I, I doesn't sound like that's the last day I drank, but it is the last day I drank. And uh, except for an act of providence, and it says that in, our, in, uh, in the 12 and 12, it says that we have warped our minds to an act of self-destructive drinking that only an act of providence will, will cure. And uh, what happened for me was that um, somebody knocked on the door, 
of that motel room. Now, at this stage of your drinking, you do not open the door, okay? <laughs> you got tape on the peephole, <laughs> right? I mean, Publishers Clearinghouse is not out there with the big check. There's no good news, okay? The phone rings, you have a heart attack, if you have a phone. Uh, so, but there was a knock on the door that night, and I didn't know, but I opened the door. And I, for years, I wondered when, after I got here, why did I open the door? What made me open the door that night? I finally figured it out, because I had nothing left to lose. I wasn't afraid anymore. I didn't have to pretend anymore to be anything other than what I was, a drunk. And I was going to die a drunk. That's the liberation that happened. I mean, it's kind of a crazy way of looking at it, but it really, that's what happened. That's how it happened to me. Um, I didn't start out to be like that. Let me assure you, I love to drink and drink. I used to own a bar on South Beach. I loved drinking. It was, it was a wonderful experience for me. I set out, I, I, I moved from a little town in upstate New York, Niagara Falls. I moved down to Miami. I went to Fort Lauderdale for spring break and I never went home. That was it. I said, man. Somebody stuck something in my mouth. They gave me something to drink. I said, this is it. I'm going to do this till the day I die. Anybody said that? I had found, what was it? The truth that he talked about in there. I'd found the truth. It was nothing less than an absolute spiritual awakening. I'll tell you, not only did it, you know, I remember early on in the 70s, because he, we read it. The feeling is so elusive. We can't really describe the feeling because it's spiritual in nature. For me, that's the way it was. It was spiritual in nature. And I remember I used to read up, and what happened to me? I'd get high light one night, I'd be drinking, and, and, and I remember I was, and I started using other substances, but it was always to control and enjoy my drinking. Because the first thing you gotta do is control that throwing up thing, you know? <laughs> you gotta control that thing, you know? That's embarrassing in the bar when you're talking to a girl, and you excuse me. <laughs> I'm fine now. <laughs> um, so there were other substances, and I found that I could quit drinking, too, for long spells with enough drugs. <laughs> and uh, kept me out of the bars. But it brought me to jail a lot. Uh, but um, I have severe ADD. You're going to have to keep me on track. Can you rewind that and tell me where I was? <laughs> tell me where I was. Okay, no, I know I was someplace in New Jersey. Um, no. Um, yes, I opened the door. No, I was talking about why I drank. And I love to drink. That's what I was talking about. Because it was spiritual to me. And I remember reading an article one time. I did some cocaine, and I remember, I thought, wow, that was pretty interesting last night. And, I, and there was an article in Life magazine or Time magazine or something about cocaine back in the 70s when it first came out, and I read it. And by the way, it did say it was non-addictive. <laughs> but here's what it said when it described the effect. You know what it said? Creates a sense of well-being. That's what I always wanted. That sense of well-being. That's an internal thing. It's not an external thing. See, and I didn't know it. For years, I thought alcohol, and people used to accuse me early on, you're drinking and doing a little bit too much. And alcohol was, I thought it was an accessory to my life. 
Tonight I'm going out, we're going out dancing, I'm gonna go out and meet some girls, I'm gonna go out and get lucky, and you know, we'll go out drinking. Alcohol soon became the main event. Who cares about the girls? Who cares about the dancing? Who cares about the sunshine in Florida? I didn't, and I loved it. I never saw the beach. I might as well have grown mushrooms for the last five years I was there. <laughs> little by little, I gave up everything that meant anything to me that would had any joy in my life, and I substituted it. And, I, and there's a line in Bill's story. I love this line. Um, there's a line in Bill's story, and, and he said, uh, they shipped us over there. I soon became lonely, and I turned to alcohol again. See, that's what I did. I turned to alcohol for everything. It fixed my loneliness. Then he talks about when the stock market crashed. I had a few drinks, and that old fierce determination came back. I could keep that lie in place. I could mount that defense. I'm going to be all right tomorrow. I'm going to fix everything tomorrow. And I did that for years, over and over and over again. Meanwhile, life is deteriorating, and we can't differentiate the true from the false. And the thing is, is that I really thought the only time I felt normal, that's why I was spiritual, the only time I felt normal, we can't, th that the alcoholic life seems the only normal one, the only time I felt normal was when I was high. That's when I felt normal. I liked the guy I was when I was high. So it was a spiritual experience for me. And like my friend Scott always says, that's why it's going to take a spiritual experience to fix it, because that's what it did for me. And... Uh, in that motel room that night, I opened the door and uh, my brother walked in. I hadn't seen him in a couple years. I owed him money. I had a motto back then, if I know you, I owe you. I owed everybody money. <laughs> and uh, he walked in and he took a look at the, the room and the, my little boy and these filthy diapers with watered down milk in a bottle and the horror that, that was my life at that moment. And I saw my life through his eyes. With no rationalization, no justification, no excuses, I was absolutely horrified. For the first time, I saw my life through your eyes, and I couldn't hide anymore. The truth broke through. I heard somebody describe the bottom as when bad things start happening faster than you can lower your standards. <laughs> I couldn't lower them any lower that night. Well, what happened that night... He took one look. He didn't admonish me. He didn't say anything. He took, he took a piece of paper with his phone number on, and he said, if you want help, I'll watch your son. Call me. Now, I don't know why. I just, hours earlier, I made a decision to drink till I, was die, till, till I die, and I was willing to go to any length to get it and quit pretending. But somewhere when he said that, there was a, like, a little light at the end of a tunnel, and I said, you mean there's a way out? But uh, I knew I didn't have the way. And I think what happens in step one, I think that, that you know, we were talking about it before this, and uh, there's a, a book out, it's called Not God, and the premise of the whole book is really quite interesting. It says it's that there is a God, in Alcoholics Anonymous, this is the, the premise, it's a written about Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a history of it, and the premise of the book is, is, is tells about what our whole kind of mission is. There is a God, and he's not us. And that's it. See, I never had room for God. Now, if you would have asked me in my life, do you believe in God? I was always hedging my bet. So I would say, yes, I believe in God. But if you followed me around with a video camera, you would go, crap, there's a guy who does not believe in God. <laughs> uh, because he had absolutely no influence in my life. I, had the, I was the final authority on everything. 
I was the final authority on who you were, because I would judge you. I was the final authority on everything in my life. There, but I, I thought I believed in God. And uh, what happened for me was that um, that night, I, I don't know why, but the only faith I'd ever had, the only religion I'd ever had, the faith in me, my God, uh, broke. And I lost faith in me. And I knew uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that night that I could not, I was, in a, I was trapped in a life I could not get out of. And I didn't know there was a way out. Didn't even know if there was. But I made the call because there was nothing else to do. And on September 12th, I made the call and he came and got us. Now, I, I tell you what, I, I really am an alcoholic. I'm going to give you my drinking, my drunkalogue. Here's how I drank. I didn't stop, I ran out. I didn't quit, I got caught. I never drank to escape, I drank to show up. That's all you need to know. That describes my drinking career for 20 years. That's what I did. And I thought, and I had rang out the last bit of joy and, and fun in the drinking. But that night I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, and we tell this to newcomers all the time, there was no more fun in it. There was no more joy in it. You couldn't bring it out. I was, there was no way I couldn't bring one more. I couldn't bring myself to even use. I was trapped in that place it talks about. We can't picture our life with alcohol. We can't picture it without it. We were at that jumping off place. We wished for the end. That's what I did. I wished for the end. And I, so I believe that step one for me was an internal process. And that process happened that night in that room. I usually call it, and, and I hate to, you know, unfortunately I'm the guy that gets to do step one, but step one is the bad news. The rest of the steps are going to be good news. I get to give you the bad news. <laughs> Here's the bad, and how my sponsor gave it to me. Um, he said, let me give you the, step one in a language you can understand, and I won't step on Polly's toes because I can't wait to hear on step two, but this, step one and step two are so connected. Uh, unless you know you're absolutely drowning, you won't scream for help. Unless you know you're in an absolutely hopeless situation, you won't scream out for help. So that's step one. And here's what he said to me. He says, let me, let me explain step one in a language you could understand. You're screwed. <laughs> that's it. That's all of it. And I said, well, that doesn't sound uh, very good. I said, she's... He said, unless you're absolutely 100% convinced that you will drink again, you will drink again. I went, what? Can you run that by me again? That was like algebra. Um, he said, unless you're 100% convinced you will drink again, you will drink again. On your own power, you cannot stop. There's a line in the book in Fred's story. It says, my friends prophesied if I had an alcoholic mind, the day would come when I would drink again. We can prophesy it. If you're an alcoholic of my type, Kreskin says you will drink again. <laughs> right? You will. And, and I said, well, Jesus, that's terrible. I said, it looks, I said according to you, it's going to take a friggin' miracle. He said, that's step two. <laughs> and that's really what it is. Because there is no human power. I was absolutely, and, and we, you know, we went on, and I, I'm not going to get it. I'm not an expert, and I'm not a teacher. I'm not, all I am in Alcoholics Anonymous is a satisfied customer. That's, 
Somebody asked me, how'd you get invited here? I said, I'm a blowhard that doesn't say no. Uh, it's, it's the best to my recollection I can tell anybody. But the truth of the matter is, and I'm not going to tell you about, I, I mean, I'll, I'll touch on a little bit about the phenomenon of craving because he started to explain to me because it was important. I didn't understand. It's kind of like back in, the, in medieval days when they thought that the sun revolved around the world, around the earth. And, you know, you could make a case for that. You'd get up and say, look, the sun comes up over there. It goes down over there. I could make a good case for that. But none of the maps fit. There was always these things. The stars didn't kind of go in the right place. You'd have to kind of, well, we don't understand all that, but we know that there's an order to it. But when somebody finally said, wait a minute, if you reverse this order... If you realize that the earth goes around the sun and all the maps worked and the stars were in the right place, everything seemed to make sense. And uh, there's a joke uh, about a woman who, who a man who, whose wife has a hearing loss and he calls a doctor. He says, hey, see, you got to understand what the problem is. He says, doc, my wife's got a hearing loss. She can't hear. He said, really? He said, what makes you think so? You got to be right on top of her before she hears you. He says, well, how close? I don't know. He says, well, tonight when you go home, find out. So he goes home that night. He opens the front door. He says, honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? She's at the kitchen sink washing dishes. Doesn't turn around. He gets a little closer. Honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? Nothing. Gets to the kitchen door. Honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? Still doesn't turn around. He grabs her by the shoulders, turns her around. He said, honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? She said, chicken for the fourth time. Uh, so I was that guy. I thought it was you. I had it wrong, man. I was the, the sun revolves around me. <laughs> And that's what I did all those years and, and couldn't figure it out. But he explained it to me. There's a, um, a part when it talks about Dr. Bob and it says, in, in, uh, it says that he had tried spiritual uh, methods to recover and never could get sober. And then Bill said, here's what Bill did. He said, when I told him about Dr. Silkworth's description of an alcoholic, meaning the phenomenon of craving, and the hopelessness of the disease, meaning that you will drink when you don't want to, he said, it, Dr. Bob started to pursue that spiritual remedy with a fervor he had never had before. The missing piece. I'm not saying, you know, we know this isn't self-knowledge. We know that. This is not a self-help program. This is a God-help program. But unless, you know, it made so many things clear. I thought I was a screw-up. This is not about getting good. This is about getting God. And it doesn't matter where we come from in here. It doesn't matter what, what background we come from. Everybody in this room is absolutely doing the best they can. You are. And, and sometimes even I can be so intolerant about that. Um, you know, um, he explained to me a little bit about the phenomenon of craving. Because I didn't understand it. When I heard that word, in a, the phenomenon of craving sounds to me like a guy sitting around doing this. I need a drink. I need a drink. Now, it is that. But here's what it looks like in my life. I'll have another. <laughs> right? I'll have another. And... Uh, <laughs> And I remember I'd go out, I'd, and, and then things eventually get worse. You know, I would go out, I'd get my paycheck. I hated people that could get paid on Friday and show up for work on Monday with lunch money and cigarette money. 
I hated those guys. I would get my paycheck. I said, that's it, man. Here's the electric money. Here's the rent money, grocery money. I'm putting it in this pocket. I got 20 bucks. I'm going to go have a couple drinks. And then little by little, I'd say, ah, who the hell needs groceries? <laughs> I could stand to lose a few pounds. And then a little later on, you know, I, don't, I like candlelight. Who needs electricity? <laughs> and, and eventually, you know, mom will take us in. Give me another round, you know. And little by little, I would rationalize and justify. It was all okay once I had a few drinks in me. The old fierce determination that... Uh, that illusion. So that phenomenon of craving, once he explained that to me, see, my whole life was, my son was born. I remember when my son was born, I thought, this will straighten me out. And I'm going to have a child. And I always wanted a child. And I went to the nursery the day he was born. I fell madly in love with that little boy. He was in the, in the nursery, and I picked him up, and I held him in my arms, and I cried like a baby. And I, I'm telling you, it was like a light switch went off in my life. Something changed that moment. I had never fallen in love with another human being like that. I knew there was a person in this world that I would do anything in the world for, that I would lay down in front of a bus for. And I meant it. And uh, I put him down in the crib, and a couple of my buddies said, let's go have a drink to celebrate the birth of your child. Eight days later, I don't even know how they got home from the hospital. See, when I drink, that's what I do is drink. And it doesn't matter what it is. I had a job one time. I remember when my son was born, I tried to get a real job. I was 36 years old. I'd never had a real job. Um, and, I, and I went down to get this job, and I applied for this job. And uh, they, they, Back in the mid-'80s, some of you will remember, they would make you take a polygraph test, and they would make you uh, um, run your credit, and uh, then they would make you take a urinalysis, right? And they'd come back, and the next day they sent me to do all those things, and they came back with the reports, and they looked at the reports, and they, the guy said, geez, you lie, you do drugs, and you owe everybody in the world money. He goes, you're perfect. When can you start? I started selling cars that day. Um, <laughs> Now, I know it's hard to believe, but I really took to that profession. <laughs> um, and listen, you want to talk about the phenomenon of craving? I'll tell you what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. The boss liked me. He said, kid, he was my age. He called me kid. Kid, he must have been from New Jersey. <laughs> he said, kid, I'm going to make you my superstar. I'm going to take you under my wing. That month, I became the top salesman. At the end of the month... They had a meeting. There were 18 salesmen in the room, and they were handing out commission checks. He gave me a commission check for $7,500, calls me up and gives me a check for $7,500, my first, first legitimate job. And then he says, in the salesman of the month, and he had every bonus there was, and he calls me up again, and he gives me another check for $4,500. It's 12 grand if you're new. <laughs> I don't want you to spend the next 20 minutes figuring that one out. Go back to looking for her. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, he gives me, I get 12 grand my first month. I thought, geez, what was I so worried about? I think there's a story like this in the book. I swear I said this. Boss, I'm going to be back after lunch. I've got to go show a car. 16 days later. Now, wait. 
that's not the crazy part. I know you guys have done crazier things. Here's the crazy part. On day 16, I put a shirt and tie on and went to work like nothing happened. <laughs> I just showed up. <laughs> they didn't even remember me. <laughs> they yelled at me for a little while and said, get out there and sell a car. I said, I love this job. <laughs> That's what the phenomenon of craving looks like in my life. But that's not the crazy part of step one. That's not the part. On the top of page 24, it says, there comes a point in the drinking of every alcoholic when the strongest desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. See, some of you used willpower. Some of you used self-knowledge. Those are the only two tools I think we have available to us is willpower and self-knowledge. And... Um, Frank explained to me what that statement meant, because I didn't quite understand. And here's, Frank always had a way of putting things where you felt more confused afterwards. He would say, what that means is that wanting to stop drinking has no effect on stopping drinking. I went, what? See, I thought, armed with a firm desire, a true resolution not to drink again was good for something, was good for nothing. Anybody in here quit? Meant it from the bottom of your heart? Ever drink after you've done that? Ever done it more than once? Well, you're either an idiot or an alcoholic. <laughs> Frank told me I was both. <laughs> he liked me. Uh, uh, we can fix alcoholic. And... Uh, <laughs> Thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous, because of you, I get to move virtually undetected amongst normal people today. It's true. Um, anyway, uh, that's step one. I'll tell you what, what step one, and now it was easy to admit and have step one in my life when it came to the alcohol and drugs. Uh, and I when all of a sudden a week turned into a month and a month turned into six months and six months turned into a year, I started to have, I started to come to believe. I started to come to believe that just maybe. See, because I'll tell you why. I sat there in this, treat, I ended up in a treatment center for indigents in Miami. It's, it was a six-month treatment center. And I remember the guy, that's where I got introduced to you. Because I was five days before my 40th birthday. Let me tell you how dumb I was. I'd never been to a detox, never been to an AA meeting, didn't even know you existed. There was something so prideful in me that I could not admit I was wrong. I was going to get up and fix this thing again. I was going to do this thing until I was going to fix it. And I ended up, and this guy brought this meeting in, and, and uh, I remember him because he had what I wanted. He had a full pack of Marlboro Reds and a watch. I thought if I could get my hands on those, I'd be gone. And... Uh, but he was a young guy, about 28-year-old guy, clean cut, nice clothes, he came up in a car, and it was a Friday night. And I'm sitting there on my 40th birthday in a treatment center for indigents, and I thought, look what my life had become. Three words I do not need to find. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I remember hearing those in a meeting. I did not need the definition of those. That was inside. Matter of fact, when people introduced themselves as alcoholics, I thought it was too clean of a word for me. I didn't belong here with you. 
there was something much worse wrong with me, is what I thought. I didn't think this thing would ever work for me. And this guy said a couple things that night I didn't agree with one. He said, you never have to take another drink or drug again if you don't want to. And I knew that was crap, because I'd not wanted to. And I drank again. But he said something else that, that I hung on to. He said, you never have to feel the way you feel again tonight. And that's what I needed. I got out of that treatment center and I went where every good alcoholic goes. Mom, I'm home. <laughs> and I had six months sober. And uh, I met the man that would change my life. You see, I believe that we're all here through the kindness of strangers. This man, I was moved in Central Florida, there's a retirement community. You've got to be a thousand years old to live in this county. <laughs> and my folks bought a, a, you know, they call them manufactured homes. They're, they're like a trailer and a house, kind of a, I call it a halfway house, because it was a halfway trailer, <laughs> halfway a house, right? And it, <laughs> so, um, I'm living in this house with mom, and uh, my son and his girlfriend were, were put in an apartment, but she was still actively using, so I couldn't go back there. And um, this guy, this old man, was watering his lawn next door. This guy was so old. And he was my age. <laughs> He's the age I am now. But um, he looked older. Looked like Bob. No. <laughs> he looked old. And he said, hey, kid, I hear you had some problems with alcohol. You want to go to a meeting tonight? And uh, you're staying home with mom, a meeting, you know, is better than nothing. So, yeah, sure. And I went to a meeting with him. I smoked all his cigarettes, burned up his gas. And, of course, you know, we go to a meeting and there's, there's probably 50 guys. They're 1,000 years old. You can't put together a whole set of teeth. I'm sitting there angry as can be, just like that kid last night. And I'm sitting, these guys are so lucky I'm desperate or I wouldn't be here. But I didn't know that's how it works, because you need that desperation. I heard somebody say one time to a, to a newcomer, said, I don't know if I can stop drinking. You've got to have a little faith. No, you don't. You've got to have no faith. That's the prerequisite. You've got to be broken. And here we acquire it. We approach it. And you're going to approach what they talked about in that, what John so eloquently talked about, where you're going to find a God that's personal to you. We don't care what you call him. We don't care who he is. It's going to be a God of your own understanding here. One of the guys I sponsor taught me something one, one morning. He said, if you want God to be real in your life, you've got to treat him like he's real. And uh, I've taken that to heart. But this, um, he took me to meetings, and Frank began to take me through the steps and talk to me about this and talk to me about step one. And I watched Frank. Frank was not a big book thumper. Frank was a big book liver. We never went to meetings with that car not full of people. Uh, he was a guy that set me free in so many ways. When I talked to him about God, I talked to him about prayer. And he, I'd say, I don't know if I, I have an issue with God. And he says, that's all right. You don't need to believe in God. You just got to start living like you believe in God. Let's see what happens. He set me free, and I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I began to do this deal. But what I did was, is I started, I just realized that I was powerless over alcohol and drugs. See, I didn't realize there's a thing, we call it, with some of the guys I sponsor. We call it PMS. Pride, sex, and money. And little by little, step one, uh, for me, over the years, I've had to get current 
with step one in each one of those areas. Unfortunately for me, I, you know, they, they say there's two ways to learn, the feather or the brick. Now the feather is that little small voice and, or you learn from somebody's advice and you follow it. The brick is the blue lights in the rear view mirror. I'm a brick guy and uh, usually it has to be ripped from my hands. And I've had over the years the, the, the great thing, and here's what happens in step one. Here's the great thing that happens in step one. It's like, um, it's like the Matrix. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that movie with the red pill and the blue pill. Remember that? If you take, here, take this blue pill, you'll go back to sleep. You won't ever remember this happened. Go back to drinking, everything. You take the red pill, and all we promise you is the truth. But you can never go back to the way it was. And I've heard it said in here. If you've really done step one, you've enjoyed your last drink. You may not have had it, because it won't keep you sober, but you've enjoyed it. And that's exactly what has happened with me, not only with the alcohol, but also with these other areas in my life. I've had to get current with step one over the years. At five years sober, I, I had built a life out of self-will because the alcohol and the drugs were gone, so I was now able to have the best job I'd ever had. I married a beautiful woman that I met in Alcoholics Anonymous who was an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. We fell madly in love, boy meets girl on AA campus. That was us. Um, and uh, we moved to West Palm, got a big house down there, the best job I'd ever had. And, uh, but I wasn't going to meetings anymore, I was a little busy. And what happened is after a short time, page 66, it says, the alcoholic insanity returns and then we drink again. You see, my problem has always been the insanity, this craziness that makes me drink when I don't, the delusion and the illusion, as Bill calls it. And here's what happened. Um, we started fighting. I was busy, I, was, I couldn't get to meetings. I was absolutely the same character I was before. See, I believe step one, part A, I didn't have a problem with it at that time. I could see the phenomenon, I could see when I drank, I wanted to continue to drink, better not drink. But I forgot, I thought step one, part B said that my life was unmanageable because of the alcohol. And I took that as far as I could get it. And I didn't realize my life is unmanageable by me not by the alcohol. This is not a halfway, pro this, there's no half measures here. There's no middle of the road solution for us. This is a way of life. If you're an alcoholic of my type. Um, now some people can do it. I mean, I, God, my, our hats are off to you, right? That's what the book says. And I've always been one of those guys. I've been looking for graduation day since I got here, you know? <laughs> is it now, is it now? Yeah, go ahead, try and see, rest on your laurels and see what happens. And that's exactly what happens. I'm waiting for the day when I have the power again. And I've just experienced that in my life again in, in a different way. Well, what happened was is my wife threw me out of the house and divorced me. And the last words she said to me as I'm leaving the house was, can't you see that all your relationships end the same? This was five years sober, five and a half years sober. And uh, I'd never heard that. Shortly afterwards, I was so angry, so enraged that uh, it affected my job. And within a few months, they fired me from the best job I ever had. So now I'm back on the street. I've got my little boy. We're back in a little apartment. I'm angry. I can't, I can't eat. I can't sleep. I'm just a total basket case. 
and I'm going to meeting. To go to a meeting, I have to look at a where and when. I've got no program. My sponsor's up north. I don't even talk to him anymore. Because how many times can you say, oh, I'm okay? And uh, finally one night I, I, I circled a bar and I, and I thought, you know, if I ever go back out and drink, I'm going to drink there, man. That's the bar I want to drink in. It was something real attractive about it. It had a name I liked. It said Bar. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I thought I could be a big shot in there. It had the parking lot in the back, opened at 8 in the morning, you know, my kind of place. And uh, I drove by that bar like a buzzard for six months, I mean for six nights. But it's hard to go drinking when you know that your lifestyle is about to change. See, I don't know about you, but I know that when I drink, my lifestyle changes. There was absolutely, and that's where step one, I believe, saved my life that night. There was absolutely no illusion that I would be drinking at the piano bar with stemmed glassware. I may have glass stemware, but it won't be at the piano bar. <laughs> and on day seven, I was so enraged, I left my little boy asleep in that apartment and I walked, I got in my car and I drove across town to that bar and I said, I'm gonna drink tonight and I don't care. I was in so much pain, I didn't care. And I knew, just like that guy last night, that young guy at the meeting said, I don't care. That was my only relief. I had finally, re that's my only relief. Quitting's not an option. And I knew I was going to drink. And I drove across town to that bar and I was parked at a red light one block away and I had butterflies in my stomach. I, I can feel them. Because I was nervous. I knew what I was about to do. Matter of fact, I knew I needed the drink was the only way to stop these butterflies. Because it's hard to drink when you got five and a half years sober and you know what's about to happen. And I looked over on the side while I was at the red light and there was a broken down van with its hood up and the front license plate said, have you prayed today? And I did something really stupid. I said the serenity prayer. And I ended up in what I call a sober blackout in a meeting across town I'd been to one time a year earlier and I walked into that meeting and I stepped in the back of the room and I sat down. I was 10 minutes away from taking a drink. And I stepped in there and the guy at the podium, just like this, and he said, is there anyone else celebrating an anniversary in the month of September? It was my sixth year anniversary. And like a dummy, I raised my hand. He said, here's what we do at this meeting. We all share a little bit on how we stayed sober. All the celebrants, there's about six or seven, but we have a visitor. Why don't you start us off? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, God, I got to come up with some classic stuff here. And... Uh, I got up to the front of the room, and this is what happened. Once again, the kindness of strangers saved my life. See, I believe step one saved, really saved me that night. I believe my, my, uh, that thing inside of me that knew what was about to happen. And uh, I got up, and I turned around, and I looked out at the crowd, and I couldn't talk. All I could do was cry, and I started to sob. And I just, I think I blurted out, you know, I don't know how to do this thing. I need help at six years sober, and I was sobbing. And now the treatment center had a van full of kids there. They go, so they rush me off the stage. They go, that's not how it is at six years. <laughs> He's just humble. <laughs> Do I look humble to you? <laughs> but there were some guys that got me in the kitchen, and they grabbed me. 
and they did just what I did to that kid last night. They pulled me aside. And they said, we're gonna I'm going to show you this one more time. What time we're going to be at your house at 7.30 in the morning. We're picking you up. And they spent the entire day with me. And they let me bellyache for months about how bad my life was, how bad my wife was, how bad everything in my, all these things that had happened to me. But they started taking me to detoxes and treatment centers and taking me to the prisons and making me sponsor guys. They took me through the steps again. They got me current with step one again, the powerlessness. And I got, which means, see, here's how Frank would tell me about step one. He'd say, I want you to imagine this. Because if you don't know you're screwed, you won't do what it takes for the rest of these things, for the rest of these steps. He said, pretend you're in the middle of the ocean, no land in sight, and you're treading water. You can tread water, right? Yeah. How long? Well, I don't know. Not forever. He said, you know it's coming. The end is coming. Now, you don't know when. Might be 10 minutes. Might be 15, 20. But you're screwed. You're going down. And outside of barring, there has to be something outside of you that has to come and help you. Now, of course, he says, being a typical alcoholic and little I know about you, if there's a, you're hoping for a helicopter, the Coast Guard shows up, or a, a big cruise ship comes along, or a powerboat is going to come along and help you. That's not what happens. This is a spiritual pro. What happens is some goofball like me comes along doing the side stroke <laughs> and the backstroke and calm and says, hey, and you go, I'm drowning. He says, yeah, come on, follow me. And where? I know the way. If you weren't absolutely desperate, if you had another choice, you wouldn't follow him, would you? Think about who you followed into these rooms. I followed an old man watering his lawn in a retirement community. A retired postman brought me to you. How's that work? Uh, I'm going to wrap it up right now. I want to tell you a quick little story because uh, a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I get to hear the good speakers for the rest of the weekend, and I am so thrilled. And uh, I love all of these people. I oh, love them with all my heart. Um, there was a bar in Miami I used to really love to go to. It was an after-hours club, and it, it, had, uh, it was the kind of bar you see in a movie. When I used to own my bar on South Beach, we'd get my little entourage and we'd leave at about 6 in the morning. And this place opened at about 6. And you go and there was no sign. All the limos would be out front. All the criminals and characters, everybody uh, that was anybody bad was in there. And you had to ring a doorbell and they'd slide the door open, just like in the movies. If they didn't know you, you weren't getting in. And they would open the door and you'd come into the most magnificent place you'd ever been in. It was about 500 people, no windows, everything in the world went on. And people were getting shot, stabbed. They would throw out the people who got shot. They wouldn't, and the people got, hey, you're bleeding on people. You got to leave. <laughs> it was the greatest bar in the world. Now. <laughs> I love this bar. Now, but here's why I really liked it. You would be in there for hours, and then this is Saturday night, right? Now I'm in my Don Johnson outfit. My, you know, this is my Miami Vice period. And they would open the door at about 11 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning to throw you out, right? And they'd open that door on Miami Beach. You know what it's like, people. Holy cow, the sun's out. They would give you a full glass of whatever you drank. I drank scotch. They would give you a full glass of scotch, and they would give you cardboard sunglasses. 
Who's got it better than that? <laughs> and I'm leaving there one night, true story, I'm leaving there one night, cigarette hanging out of my mouth, glasses scotch, my cardboard 3D sunglasses on. And I'm walking, and I get in my car and I drive about a block. And I stopped at the red light and I looked next to me and there's this little car with just a humble little family and a couple, a guy and his wife. And you could tell they're all dressed up with a shirt and tie. Little, and the little kid's in the backseat, a boy and a girl, and they're in a shirt and tie. And the little girl's got curls in her hair and a dress. And it's Sunday morning and you know where they're going. And, and I look over at them and I go, what a bunch of losers. And here I... <laughs> And they look over at me and they go, hey, Dad, look, there's the Antichrist. <laughs> but today, because of that mailman, because of you, because of the program, because of a loving God, I'm in the other car. Thank you for letting me be here.